0: Welcome to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications at Goldman. And on today's episode, I'll be talking with Sheila Patel, the Chief Executive Officer of International Goldman Sachs Asset Management, also known as GSAM. From QE in Europe to slower growth in China, we've got a lot to talk about. Sheila, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kate. Let's start with the big picture. Um, What are the key market themes that you see? What risks uh, should global investors consider uh, in 2015?
1: Well, I think the year has already started off with a bang. Uh, Certainly at GSAM, uh, as I look around the world, I've been to about 12 countries in the last two months. And clients are looking at 2015 as a year of change. They are very focused on what the Fed might do. Uh, They are taking harder looks at equities around the world more than ever. There's a fair bit of confidence in U.S. growth, which is great to see, and hopes that the lowering of oil prices will lead to a boost of the global growth sentiment in economies. Uh, But I do think there is undertones and shades of concern, and we're watching those as well around interest rates, around deflation. Uh, So a lot to watch.
0: So uh, let's talk about central banks for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe uh, has started off the year pretty active. And so how does that increased easing pressure that's coming out of the ECB affect central bank policy globally? And, and what do you think that might mean for uh, the Fed's approach to rate hikes mm-hmm. uh, this year in the United States?
1: Sure. Well, I think generally it's been very interesting to see client reaction and overall market sentiment around central bank action. I think that perhaps people expected central banks would be more coordinated, uh, because that's been the recent experience. But I think coordination is generally expected more around times of crisis. We've gotten used to it due to the financial crisis, and we're seeing they're not so coordinated all the time. After all, nor do they need to be. When you look at what the ECB is doing, I think they did come through with action on QE that the market expected, and in a size that was expected. The key question will be, will it transmit to growth for Europe? And that's still an area where there is still some concern among clients, although they are starting to look at and put investment into European equities, but more focused perhaps on companies with exposure to global growth. When they look to the Fed or they look at the recent action by the SMB on the Swiss currency, they expect different things. Uh, They certainly were surprised by the action by the Swiss, and I think that what that tells you about central bank coordination globally is that certainly on currencies, you could see a lot of divergent moves as currency moves impact the competitiveness of economies on a relative basis. I think that will weigh into the many other things the Fed will be considering. And the view at GSAM, at least, is that we won't see significant Fed action until at least late in the year.
0: Right. So the European acted pretty decisively earlier Mm -hmm. this year, but what might keep that from really driving growth in Europe? The fear is essentially that it's not going to be enough.
1: The fear would certainly be that it's not enough. The fear would also be about uh, the relative competitiveness of each of the markets. I think that the state of reform in each country is vastly different. If you look at Germany, for example, there's been an extensive amount of economic reforms to try to make things as competitive as possible, whether it's in terms of the labor market or on the international scene, whereas if you look at France, there's a long way to go. So there's potentially a lot of divergence within Europe, and that could mean that the ECB's action doesn't mean that the rising tide lifts all boats.
0: Sure. Um, Half of income in European companies comes from outside Eurozone. What what will help build investor confidence in the region? I mean, obviously this lowers their cost base at Mm -hmm. some level, um, and presumably the ones with exposure to global growth will do a little bit better. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I think that on the global growth front vis-a-vis European companies, people are looking at a couple of items. Certainly, the lowering of oil prices would be expected to help a number of the European corporates, in some ways more than even the European economies as a whole because the taxes on energy prices are so much higher in Europe, there's not a direct transmission to the European consumer. But when you think about European corporates that are active on the world stage, it's definitely a boost for them in terms of production costs and competitiveness. Then you move on to where are their markets. Uh, And in fact, when you look at uh, European companies that have been some of the most successful on the multinational front, they've been developing new markets. So what does that key right into? How's China doing? When well, you wonder how a European multinationals doing, a large car company in Europe, uh, a German car manufacturer, you may turn your eyes to the East and question if, if China falters, do they falter?
0: Sheila, one of the issues in Europe is the transmission mechanism. The, the entire European economy is heavily dependent on banks, which supply the vast majority of the funding to the economy, versus the United States system, where the split is reasonably even between banks and capital markets. What challenges does the European model face and how do people think about those challenges?
1: Certainly, those challenges weigh in also heavily to people's debate over where European equities can head. Uh, The funding to European corporates, especially to small and medium enterprises, is a bit choked up when you look at a system uh, that doesn't allow as much to be determined by the capital markets but instead is much more heavily dependent on banks. When you then tie in the QE we were talking about earlier, that's why people worry that the transmission may not make it through. If banks in Europe are still under heavy pressure, with Basel III coming, to hold even more capital, does the money just end up on their balance sheet, rather than out there in the market driving new opportunities and growth in existing and in new businesses, especially SMEs? Uh, So that's a real challenge, and I think what people are looking to uh, the European Union for is some action in in conjunction with what you've seen the ECB do to make sure the transmission mechanisms are there for businesses to succeed and people to succeed via the work that has now been done via QE. You
0: you talked a little bit about China, Sheila. Um, You you just came back from there, you saw some clients. Um, What's going on in Beijing? They, they took some steps very recently mm-hmm. to, uh, to spur more lending by the banks. Um, mm-hmm. What's your view on, on the economy there?
1: Well, I was just in Beijing last week, and uh, you know, I have to say that things feel pretty good in China. I think one of the challenges always with China is, is obviously there's an immense size issue just to try to wrap your head around the growth that's happening there, but also there's a law of large numbers. And so certainly you've seen the world get spooked when they see maybe China not at 8 or 9% growth or even 7% growth? What if it's 6% or, God forbid, 5%? And we tend to forget those are on much higher numbers than they were in past, that kind of growth. And certainly those numbers are also on much more uh, sizable contribution to the global economy than they were before. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting in the US or in Europe, 5% actually shouldn't seem so bad. So the real question is, how stable is that? and and the constant worry that maybe is there some impending crash of some segment of the Chinese market. I think what China has demonstrated, certainly to many investors' satisfaction, and more importantly, what you feel on the ground in China to local investors' satisfaction, is they do get it. They are trying to make sure that they manage sectors where there might be asset inflation, where there might be moves too fast or too slow. And so I think there's been a, a gain in confidence Uh, in China, in terms of regulators and government's ability to try to manage growth in a sustainable way. Uh, We obviously want to see more of that. And I think things like the Shanghai-Hong Kong Connect and other mechanisms that will slowly open up China to investors will continue to encourage that action.
0: Interesting. So there's been a lot of talk this year about divergence or dispersion, Mm -hmm. um, particularly uh, amongst the emerging markets. Mm -hmm. Where do you see A lot of opportunity for investors, and Mm -hmm. where do you have a little bit less faith that there'll be opportunities for investors?
1: Sure. Well, I definitely think there's a fair amount of divergence in emerging markets. And when uh, we at GSAM take a look at emerging markets, we certainly key into a few uh, factors. For example, uh, I'll go back to energy prices again, because for many of the emerging markets, it's one of the most important inputs into the question of how fast they grow. Uh, One market that we've been looking at very closely for that reason, as well as several others, is India. I think between the political change that's happened there, the seemingly successful then throughput of the promises of the Modi administration into action in terms of reducing bureaucracy, encouraging industry, uh, the growth certainly you've already seen in the stock market, all tie in to a a view that, uh, that all those factors, plus the positive demographic outlook, for India means that this could be a very vibrant and growing economy, one you would expect and would have expected maybe in prior years but haven't been seeing, of a billion person plus economy. So that's one we're very focused on, where we think despite the up move you've already seen in 2014, there could be even more room to grow, particularly with lower oil prices that can spur uh, corporate development. In other places, it, it gets a bit tougher, right? I think we see opportunities in China but I think you have to be selective. Uh, we've already seen a fair bit of growth and obviously uh, some industries are more favorable than others. So it's a bit more of maybe a stock picker's market than as easy a time. As you move outside those big two, obviously you get to a very different place when you look at uh, maybe South America or you look at emerging Europe. And there, there are multiple factors to key in, but certainly currency is one that we'd be watching as well as the relative fiscal health. Whereas I think, uh, generally, when you look around Asia, you feel maybe a bit better about emerging markets and their fiscal health.
0: OK. Um, switching gears a little bit, you've done some work around the economic value created by uh, women entrepreneurs in developing markets. Talk a little bit about that and some of the impediments that exist today. Obviously, Goldman does a lot of work in this space. But what, what's holding back um, women-owned SMEs in, in the developing world?
1: Sure. Well, I think women-owned businesses in the emerging markets are a fascinating space, not just because they're owned by women, but because they can drive such an enormous amount of growth for the emerging markets. If you look at places like India and China, Uh, Women own significant businesses, and yet if they're denied access to capital, we're denied a significant engine of growth. For example, uh, if you look at a place like India, and you think about women-owned businesses getting access to the right capital, their GDP could grow significantly. That's women entering the workforce, but it's also saying, what would Indian GDP grow? People have mentioned numbers as much as 12 or 15 percent change in the GDP growth rate if you get women-owned businesses on the right track. In the emerging markets generally women-owned businesses also set off an incredibly valuable positive cycle a virtuous circle so to speak Uh, women spend money on children's education that adds to a boosted gdp which is even unknown at the moment but over the next 20 years could be tremendously important because a more educated workforce means their children will drive a better economy they spend on health which reduces cost for corporates they focus on uh, hiring additional workers, women and men, and having women in the workforce in many emerging markets also helps their demographics. So overall, in emerging markets, actually in developed markets too, like Japan, if we got women in the workforce, there's a tremendous engine of growth to be enjoyed. However, there are a lot of challenges, and I think we have to look at those as well when we consider the growth that women can drive in emerging markets. When you look at small and medium enterprises that are owned by women, the credit gap is actually astonishing. Uh, work done by ourselves, by the World Bank, by the IMF, all distinctly show that for multiple reasons, women have a much harder time for equal quality businesses, equal uh, growth businesses, getting access to the same credit. And this is happening for multiple reasons. In many countries, there are impediments based on the law. Does a woman get to own her business, actually? Or does it end up being transmitted if she's uh, married? Does her husband actually own the business? So does he have to be involved in any loans? Uh, There's an experience issue. Have people been trained? Do they understand how to write a loan application? Is there any help at the banks for that? Uh, I think also we've been trying to work on helping women in small and medium enterprises in emerging markets around the world to think big and women tend to be more conservative in their views of funding, just try to grow a small bit at a time. But in fact, they have very viable businesses and need to separate their personal finances from their corporate finances and think big when it comes to growing their businesses. So that would allow them to then approach banks and the finance industry in a more uh, more interesting way that shows the potential of their business. Whereas the focus on very small amounts of money or relying on personal credit rather than corporate credit is actually a disservice to the value they can add to economies. Yeah.
0: So a little less microfinance, a little more uh, big capital. A little more big capital. Yeah. Okay. It's
1: time for it. And they can run incredibly successful businesses when they do that.
0: Yeah. Um, let's just talk about oil for a second. The drop, you've talked a little bit about this, but the drop mm-hmm. in oil prices and other commodity prices suggests a bit of deflationary forces at work. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you think that will impact um, U.S. markets? And um, you've already talked about Europe, but uh, Mm -hmm. other markets around the world as well.
1: Sure. Well, I think, first of all, you can never help but be fascinated by markets, right? It's hard to uh, imagine a world, maybe if we thought about it five years ago, where if you went to the average person, uh, average investor, and you said, what if oil prices came down? Would that be bad? they scratch their head, bad, no, that would be great, it would spur growth, it would allow investment, it would free up consumers, wallets, 80 things anybody could come up with that's good. But here we are in 2015. And we like to worry. And we like to worry, yep. so we find a way. Right. Uh, I just came back uh, a few weeks ago from a visit to several countries in the Middle East. I think that's an interesting place to have conversations, obviously, about where we are on oil and supply demand. I think both there as well as uh, in my other travels uh, outside of the Middle East, there's a key focus on is this a supply issue or a demand issue. Certainly in the Middle East, but also among some key investors in the U.S., in Europe and in Asia, the view is for the moment this is a supply question, not a drop in demand. As long as that is true, as long as we believe that's true and the statistics and and the facts we get. Uh, on the U.S. economy and elsewhere show us that it is true, Uh, it's not as much a worry. right? I think that you can watch deflation. Certainly we should watch for it. Certainly Europe should watch for it. But in an overall context, it's still a net positive with U.S. GDP 70 percent levered to the U.S. consumer and then having an immediate extra few bucks in their wallets to go to spend, to uh, look at property, to drive the economy. So I think, I think the focus around the world is on the supply-demand question. As long as we remain on the right side of that, I don't think the drop in oil prices is necessarily the drag uh, that the deflation specter seems to put on it.
0: Yeah, it's a large tax cut and a progressive one, too. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Jill, for joining us. We'll close thanks, it with Jake. that little bit of good news, or big bit of good news. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much for listening.
2: This episode was recorded on February 4th, 2015. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research, or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition... The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity. No part of this podcast may, without GSAM's prior written consent, be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in any form, by any means.